If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Salem, Investigating the Witch Trials. Brought to you by History Extra, I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This is Episode 8. Imagine a witch. I'd be willing to bet that the image that just sprung into your mind was of a woman. Something that we can't get away from when we're looking for explanations for the Salem case is gender. 14 of the 19 people who were hanged for witchcraft in 1692 were women. So could their gender, or perhaps their transgression of what was expected from their gender, be part of the reason they were targeted? But as with everything in the Salem case, things are more complicated than they first appear. As I just said, 14 of the 19 people hanged for witchcraft were women. The other five were men. So today we'll be trying to unpick the question of gender dynamics in the Salem case. Professor Marion Gibson thinks it can be an important factor in understanding why witchcraft accusations occurred and who they targeted. So gender is really important. It's a really important category for thinking about that big question, why people are accused of witchcraft. It has to be because when you look at the English context from which most of these Salem colonists come, when you look at the, the data about trials held in England, 90% of those accused are women. So that is a huge majority. It's not everybody. And those 10% of male accused are really, really important. So it's not all about gender. It's not a simple equation, which is our women. That's it, you know, which is equal women. But it's not the whole story. I think when you get to Salem, the colonists carry with them this idea that witches are primarily going to be women. But they also take this idea that some exceptional men, men who stand out in the community in some way, might be witches as well. And so people talk a lot about gender and how you know, witches are usually women. But it is noticeable in the Salem case that they're not always so. You know, there are a couple of really famous male witches, Giles Corey, John Proctor, names that people will have heard of. And according to Stacey Schiff, the author of The Witches, Salem 1692, gender influenced more than just who was accused. 
I would love to write another book about gender in Salem overall because it's utterly fascinating. The first accusers are indeed all young girls. Um, The first fingers will be pointed at women. And after that, things gallop ahead to the point where siblings or, or adolescents will often accuse each other, usually of the opposite gender. Men will tend to see the strangest, most unearthly things. They tend to hallucinate more. Um, they, they definitely make for the most colorful testimony. Um, men will very often accuse their wives, and wives will not ever accuse their husbands. So there's a lot that's go- that goes on um, gender-wise. I think one of the most stunning parts to me is just how the men tend to see the more colorful visions. After the first testimony early on in, in, in a courtroom, two men that evening come across this unearthly creature, um, which, which they see by the side of the road. Everyone is clearly scared out of his wits, but the men tend to see much more interesting translucent cats and spectral figures. So let's go back to the beginning with this. That traditional image of the witch, which I asked you to imagine at the start of the episode. Marion told me more about where the connection between women and witchcraft comes from. I think women are particularly likely to be accused of witchcraft for a couple of reasons. One is that witchcraft gives you a power that you don't have in other circumstances. So, you know, women can't be magistrates, they can't be ministers, they can't have the kind of power that men have by right in their communities. It seems quite likely that people would then imagine, oh, well, they're going to turn to the secret power, aren't they? Women want power like men do. How are they going to get it? Magic, there you go. Simple. So I think part of it is to do with access to levels of power. And you see this across all the societies of of the witch hunt right the way across Western Europe. There also, there are a couple of traits that are attributed to women, which tend to make people think of them as being witches. One is that they gossip and they talk to each other. And that's often mentioned in witchcraft accusations and in demonologies, which are the big books of theory about what witchcraft is. Um, So, you know, they talk a lot. They have loose tongues, apparently. And people think of that as associated with the devil, who is associated with lies and gossip and deceit. So there's a sort of overlap between ideas that early modern people have about speech. They think women talk too much and they say the wrong things and they lie. And they think the devil, too, is a kind of silver-tongued wordsmith who's going to drop words in your ear and make you do bad things. So I think that association between women and the devil is important in getting people to think about them as witches. By being weak-minded, empty vessels, women were seen as more susceptible to the wiles of the devil. So could witch-hunting be seen as a means of subduing and oppressing women? According to Professor Ronald Hutton, historians have debated the gendered aspects of witch-hunting for decades. And as it turns out, the idea of witch-hunting being synonymous with woman-hunting doesn't quite add up. In the 1970s and 1980s, the hypothesis was put forward quite plausibly then that this was woman hunting. In other words, it was a a mechanism used by male-dominated society to terrify and subdue women and to take out more independent-minded and, uh, to men, more troubling women. This has bitten the dust in the 90s and the 2000s with better research. And despite what you might assume, if we look at a broader span of witch accusations beyond Salem, women haven't always been viewed as the primary creators of dark magic. 
It turns out that across the world, you find societies that fear what Europeans call witchcraft. But the gendering is pretty arbitrary. In some world societies, witches are always women. In some, they're always men. In some, they're always children. In some, they're always elderly. In some, they're always the poor. In some, they're always the rich. And in ancient Europe, there was a strong association in most places between women and magic. In other words, most Europeans from ancient times onwards have thought of women as the more magical sex, more talented magic, and more able to deploy it spontaneously. But in bits of Europe that didn't have that belief traditionally, when the early modern witch hunts arrive, the victims are predominantly men. So in Iceland, which has a vicious witch hunt, 93% of the victims are male. Because in Iceland, magic was worked with runes, and they were largely the preserve of men. In Finland and the Baltic states, men were initially at least, before authorities from outside took over, the main victims, because those areas had a tradition of shamanism, of experts who communicated in trance with spirits to work magic, and they were mostly male. In Normandy, it was shepherds who were persecuted as witches because they were thought of as the magical people. In Austria, it was vagrants, and again, they're mostly men. You put that lot together, it's quite a lot of Europe in which men rather than women are persecuted as witches, but still across most of Europe, it's women. It's really a question of inherited tradition about who's the more magical sex, rather than misogynism as such. Because societies like Iceland and Finland had just the same kinds of religion, gender relations, and political and social structures as societies in Europe which hunted women. So while witchcraft wasn't solely the preserve of women, in the Salem context, they certainly bore the brunt of the accusations. And is there anything that could explain that? One thing we need to think about is the position of women in Puritan societies like Salem. Marion Gibson. Women in Puritan culture had a very subordinate position in a lot of ways. Um, Wives were expected to do what their husbands told them. They were obviously expected to care for their children. They were expected to run the household and liaise with the servants about things. Or they were expected, if they didn't have servants, if they were poorer women, to do a lot of the household chores, to run the dairy and the buttery and to get stuff to market and to really pick up a lot of the very basic grinding day-to-day work of the household. Um, And on top of that, they were prevented from holding the top roles in their community, of course. They couldn't be ministers, they couldn't be magistrates, they were disempowered in a whole variety of ways. So women didn't hold positions of power or influence, something that clearly would have left them more vulnerable. But it's not quite that simple. Marion explained how the thinking on women's roles and values could be fairly complex. Puritans did sometimes get a bit ahead of this whole misogynistic aspect of their culture in that sometimes they would, in certain sects, allow women to preach. And I think that's quite interesting. I think there's a tension in Puritan society between realising that women are godly souls, that they're important, that their voices are important, that they're God's creatures the same as men are, and at the same time having this kind of violently patriarchal desire to repress them. This conflicted understanding of women was something that Kathleen Brown, historian of early America, also mentioned to me. Among Puritans, generally, 
and and New England Puritans in particular, um, there is a way that a newer set of beliefs and attitudes toward women growing very much out of um, Protestant religious ways has supplanted an older, early modern European, early modern English way of thinking about women, which is to say that an older understanding of women as the daughters of Eve, as the weaker sex physically, constitutionally, um, and spiritually, um, has been supplanted by, you know, I sometimes think of it as, you know, women got a promotion with Protestantism. Um, they could aspire to be um, virtuous and industrious wives and mothers. And there certainly is a lot of reinforcement of that as the proper pathway for women among New England Puritans. Um, and for the women who do fulfill those roles, there's a certain amount of respect and even local authority accorded to them, perhaps as healers, perhaps as midwives, um, perhaps as sort of people in community memory, not official power in any way, but a certain kind of respect for their role as producers of large families, as pious matrons. There was clearly a tension at play here. And according to Marion Gibson, these mixed messages could in fact lead to women hoping for more than society was ready to give to them. So I think if you're a Puritan woman, you're drawn towards thinking you, you could have, maybe, maybe, you could have a bigger role in your society. Your religious experience is just as important as your man's religious experience, but then quite violently being denied that at the same time. In many ways, the old ways died hard. Kathleen Brown again. That lusty daughter of Eve is always still available to New England Puritans whenever a woman um, acts out. If she talks disrespectfully, if she talks aggressively, if she talks too much, um, if somehow she ends up through accident of family inheritance or death or childbearing or remarriage to be in control of property, when in fact the ideal would be a male owner of property. If she does not remain in kind of harmonious relationship with her neighbors, you know, if she's a troublemaker, if she stirs controversy and conflict, if she's too assertively demands what she thinks is hers, all those things could get a woman in trouble and I think kind of conjure up some of the not very distant knowledge of women as spiritually the most vulnerable members of the community, the most likely to be seduced by Satan. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out 
with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Kathleen mentioned several things there that might see a woman branded as a witch. And it isn't hard to identify parallels in the stories of some of the women accused at Salem. So let's run through a couple of them. First up, she mentioned a woman who talks disrespectfully. Think of Sarah Good, who retorted to a minister before her execution, I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, and threatened God would give him blood to drink. Next up, Kathleen talked about a woman who stirs controversy. Well, we could apply this to Martha Corey, who was well known in the community to have given birth to a mixed-race illegitimate son back in the 1670s. This perceived transgression of social norms would have been highly controversial in the late 17th century. And what about a woman who demands what she thinks is hers? Well, how about the litigious Sarah Osborne, who doggedly pursued an inheritance claim following the death of her husband in 1674? I want to look at a couple of the other examples Kathleen mentioned there in more depth, and a couple of women who might fit into those moulds. First up, a woman that stood dangerously close to money and land holdings. Rebecca Nurse was in her 70s at the time of her accusation. She was the matriarch of a prosperous family with 300 acres, which was also the source of frequent border disputes with the neighbouring Putnam clan. As Kathleen Brown told me, in some ways... Nurse wasn't really the type of person that you might ordinarily assume would be accused. Somebody like Rebecca Nurse, who is from Salem Town, which is the sort of more cosmopolitan of the two Salems, but who attends church in Salem Village. She's 70. Um, She's really led a pretty blameless life. From all accounts, she doesn't have a connection to accused witches, um, because that's actually another thing about accused witches is that very often, um, if you look at the accused witches family tree, she comes from a family of witches or accused witches. So, but Rebecca, Rebecca Nurse is not one of those people. So we do find a number of people among the accused who seem to be the model of um, virtuous older womanhood. As Kathleen mentioned there, Nurse was the model of older womanhood. She had eight grown-up children at the time she was accused. But can the claims against her tell us anything about attitudes towards older women in a society like this? If they're older, if they're past childbearing age, then they fit the typical um, accused, the profile of the accused in New England, and that many of the women who are accused witches in New England are grandmothers. And remember, being a grandmother in New England would happen at a somewhat earlier age. Um, But these are women who are no longer looking forward to lives as producers of children. That part of their life is past. So I think 
If we look at witchcraft accusations more generally across a fuller sweep of, you know, New England history, and especially if we're to compare it with the people that we know would be the typical accused witch in England or Scotland, um, I mean, there are a couple of big differences. One is that um, although you still find marginal, kind of vulnerable, older women among the accused in New England, um, before the Salem outbreak, certainly, but even in the Salem outbreak, you're more likely to find women who actually are dangerously connected to property. That is to say, they're not poor and down and out. So, in comparison, in England, most women who are accused are older and marginal, perhaps suspected of being a potential burden on church funds for the poor, right? A, a potential burden to neighbors. And in New England, it, it isn't quite so clear. I mean, there definitely are, you know, the women who are older, no longer going to be bearing children, perhaps on a second or third marriage, quarrelsome with their neighbors, not really well set up themselves in terms of property, needing to always ask for help or ask for charity. But that's one of the differences in New England, that the accused women might actually have inherited property, might actually not be down and out. And Rebecca Nurse fits this New England mould. But why was it that older women were more likely targets for accusations? I think part of it has to do with the fact that a woman who's born her children has sort of served her purpose in the household in a certain way. And especially in the prolific Puritan household where, you know, women are having more children and more children are living to adulthood um, than in England at the time. And then I think there's also, you know, the question of while a man in a prosperous household who has a leadership um, position in the community um, might be a revered elder who still has a purpose religiously or politically, um, it's not so clear what an older woman's purpose is. Kathleen paints a fairly depressing picture of older womanhood there. But old age wasn't the only factor that might place a woman in the firing line. Next, I think it would be interesting to look at a woman who many people say was targeted for transgressing gender norms, Bridget Bishop. Marion Gibson told me more about her. People talk about her as being a kind of in a racy tavern-keeping woman who wore inappropriate clothes and it stood out because she was uppity. That's that's the myth that you get a lot around witches. Oh, they were difficult women. Um, and yes, I'm sure in some cases they were. That's absolutely true. But Bridget Bishop has got confused historically with another woman, Sarah Bishop, who probably was a tavern-keeper, but we don't think our Bridget Bishop was. Yet people still tell the same story over and over again. You know, I was looking at Wikipedia this morning and the myths are all over it. So she may not have been a tavern keeper, but you could argue that she was seen by the community as a difficult woman, or as Kathleen put it earlier, a troublemaker who stirs conflict. Bishop had previously been hauled in front of magistrates for theft, and had even been on trial for murdering her husband via witchcraft. And there's an undercurrent to the accusations against Bishop that Stacey Schiff thinks is important to consider if we're thinking about gender. Bridget Bishop points to something interesting. She's often mentioned um, as, as, as an early casualty. Um, she gets a lot of attention for various reasons, but 
If you look at the testimony against Bridget Bishop, you notice something um, rather remarkable, which is that some of the men who will testify against her, one of them in particular says she visited him in his bed at night and in a very classic way, you know, basically presses the the breath out of his very lungs because she's lying on him so heavily. Um, Those men tend to remember very clearly what she was wearing in church over the previous months. They've clearly been looking at Bridget Bishop a lot. And it's very difficult not to get the sense that this is a woman who on some level represents temptation to them, Um, which points up another aspect of who gets accused, which is that it can be I mean, in Bridget Bishop's case, no one ever comes out and says she was good-looking or she was fair-faced. There's no allusion to that whatsoever. But she has clearly somehow planted herself in these men's imaginations. And she is typical, or she points to a trend here, which is that if you were a woman who walked around with a book in your pocket, if you were a woman who came in from the rain and somehow didn't look bedraggled and wet— if you're a woman who made exceptionally good cheese, your chances of getting accused were greater. There's almost a bifurcation here where the powerless members of the community, like the first three women um, named, are accused. And the women who are on some level intelligent are also suspect. Stacy suggested there that sexual undercurrents could have played a role in the accusations against Bridget Bishop. And this might tap into something that Marion Gibson highlighted to me. The fact that women's sexuality was both a frightening and threatening subject in Puritan society. So women reproduce in ways that men, particularly male doctors of the period, don't understand. They don't really understand women's anatomy in the way that they will do later on. They're they're perplexed by it. They see it as a secret world. They don't really understand the processes of conception and gestation. And they're suspicious of of the idea that women get together around births and and deliver children for themselves, often excluding men from that, that private community. They worry about the secret world of women and they're worried that women have this terrible power over them which you know as we can now see is is a a power of flirting a power of sexual attraction a a power of beauty um which you know we still can't really quantify who says whether somebody's beautiful or not in the early modern period that becomes something that male writers are very, very concerned about. They're they're fussed by the notion that they can look at a pretty woman in the street and not stop thinking about her for the rest of the day. If you're a godly minister, that's a problem. And so women's sexual power of attraction is often seen as a source of witchcraft or as part of their witchcraft practice. They're often accused of practicing love magic, for example, love spells. Oh, you know, I saw her in the street and I couldn't stop thinking about her all day. That's because she put a spell on me. You only need to think about how a beautiful woman might be called bewitching. And you can see how ingrained this connection is. The link between witchcraft and women's sexuality is one that goes back a long way. Witchcraft accusations in early modern Europe were rife with sexual imagery, especially the recurring idea of witches copulating with the devil. But what's interesting is that the accusations at Salem don't seem to have been so explicitly sexual in nature. 
Sexual fears don't seem to have played so much of a part in the Salem accusations as they did across Europe. So, for example, you don't get the kind of stories that are told of, of witches on the European continent um, about casting an eye on some godly man and forcing him to leave his wife. Or even they're even accused of penis theft in early modern Germany and Austria. So, so the witch can take away a man's penis and hide it somewhere or make him impotent more simply. You know, these appear to be fears about impotence broadly. You don't get any of that in Salem. It is quite interesting, the the parts of witchcraft belief from Europe that travel across the Atlantic and those that don't. And the sexual aspect isn't nearly so important to the Puritans. They seem a lot more buttoned up about sexuality generally. Which is intriguing, because you might assume that when the pressure cooker of this buttoned-up Puritan society finally exploded... Sexual tensions would have been one of the first taboo issues to burst out. Marion Gibson again. You would think that. And often when you see a popular cultural representation of Salem now, that's exactly what happens. You know, you you get to think, oh, they're all hypocrites, aren't they? Really, they've got these sexual fantasies going on. And you would imagine the courtroom would be the place that would come out. And in modern TV you know, dramatisations of the, the trials, that often happens. But it didn't happen in reality. It's really weird, isn't it? They, they were buttoned up about sexuality and they stayed buttoned up even when they accused witches. And nobody's really properly explained that. But while sex may have not been an obvious factor at play in Salem, Stacey Schiff suggests that we may be able to see romantic relationships playing a role. I think there is a lot of redressing old wrongs in the um in the lovelorn department. I think there I think there's a certain amount of people who failed in courtship, people who didn't return men's advances, women who um, resisted men, um, someone who married someone whom they hoped they hadn't married. I think there's probably a certain amount of um, trying to correct those disappointments. Before we end today's episode, I want to return briefly to one of the biggest complications to do with gender at the Salem witch trials. As I mentioned at the beginning, while the connection between women and witchcraft was certainly strong, it wasn't comprehensive. Remember that five out of the 19 people hanged for witchcraft were men. Added to that was Giles Corey, who was pressed to death for refusing to enter a plea. Many more men were accused. But as Stacey Schiff highlighted, even the accusations against men can reveal something interesting about the gender dynamics of the time. When it comes to gender, probably the most stunning fact is that although the bulk of the accusations are against women, and witchcraft does seem to be a matrilineal tradition in some way, the chief perpetrator this year, the person who is directing this satanic invasion, is said to be a man. So, you know, at the end of the day, they are all in his thrall. They are all, you know, working for him. So even in the subverted world of devil worship, Women were denied leadership roles and found themselves subjected to a man. As instances like this highlight, gender is a fascinating lens and certainly an important one to look at the Salem case with. But as Marion explained to me, it can't necessarily provide an answer to everything. Thinking about Salem through the preoccupations that we have now can be quite misleading. So we think about gender a lot in contemporary society, and quite rightly. Um, But that tends to mean we look on witches as being difficult women. And yes, in some cases they were, but in some cases they weren't. So that's not the whole story. On our final episode, 
We'll be looking at how the community of Salem came to terms with what they'd experienced. And we'll ask, can we finally pin down why the Salem witch trials happened? Salem Investigating the Witch Trials is made by the team behind BBC History Magazine and the History Extra podcast. It's written, researched and presented by me, Ellie Cawthorne, and produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Fact-checking is by Josette Reeves. BBC History Magazine editor is Rob Attar and our content director is Dave Musgrove. For more history podcasts on a variety of subjects, head to historyextra.com forward slash podcast.